This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 16, with me, Russell Hillier. On today's show, I'm joined once again by my brother, Dylan Hillier, and also sitting at the table is the best-selling author, former Ottawa City Councilor, and retired master sniper, Jody Middick. Now, Jody Middick is a name that you've probably heard before, especially if you live in the Ottawa area, but I guarantee you haven't heard his full story. Not like this. We're going to get into the war in Afghanistan, what it takes to make a record-setting sniper kill, and the cesspool of politics in our nation's capital, and the toll that it takes on people who venture into that swamp hoping to make a difference. This podcast was one that I had been looking forward to for quite some time, and so we took our time drawing over a whole bunch of different topics, which is why I'm going to split and post this conversation into two different parts. So here we go. This is part one of my conversation with Jody Medic. I hope you enjoy. This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 16, with me, Russell Hillier. And returning to the podcast, I've got my brother, Dylan. Thank you for having me again, Russ. Good day, Dylan. We've also got, to my right, at the table, the one, the only, Jody Medic. What up, y'all? Jody. Yes, welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to Lanark County. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I love uh, your house so far, by the way. That's the dopest farmhouse I've ever been in. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet property. It's pretty much, I wish I could live here. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, so I might move in if you got a spare room. You're welcome back anytime. There, there's a lot of like ground that I wanted to cover today. You know, I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about your time in Afghanistan. Love it. Some of your time in politics because, oh uh, yeah, well, well, we'll get into it. All right, let's get into it. There, there aren't many, uh, there's not a lot of people, like household names in Canada who are like military oriented. And I'm not like overstating things. Like I don't want to like make it seem like every Canadian knows who Jody Medic is, but there's a lot of people mm. who know who Jody Medic right. is. And like, I'm talking about my colleagues in Calgary, like teachers, certainly in the Ottawa area, you're like a pretty well known name. The reasons are obvious. I mean, you were on the... We talked about this earlier. You're on The Amazing Race. My favorite TV show. <laughs> and you, yeah, I know you can't wait to do it again. Oh, so glad I didn't get invited back for their all-star episode. We, we've got that. We've got uh, <laughs> your, your book, best-selling book. Yes, sir. You know, veteran of Afghanistan, yeah. Ottawa City Councillor. You know, you've lived a pretty public life for many years. And so, and I know you've taken a step back from all that. Yeah. So, so first of all, just thanks for like... Cheers, man. Yeah, I'm really happy that you're, that you're here. I guess what I what I want to start off with is because like what we usually do in the show is like talk about you know the books that we've read and, and written uh, and we won't we won't like dwell too much on this but everybody has their own reason for writing yeah. a memoir yeah and like sometimes it's like well most of the t- I, I don't think it's for money because like let's be honest you don't get you get you can get some ways good ways to get rich there is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's funny because. You know, everybody who meets like a best-selling author, which your book is certainly a bestseller. Uh, I sold Don Cherry and Ron McLean together. Perfect. There you go. And so every, everybody thinks that like, you know, you make a ton of money. You don't. I think uh, I lost money on my book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. What was your reason for writing this book? Because like when you're sitting down to write, mm-hmm. like, I mean, you're... Well, to, I guess the, the easiest answer is uh, people demanded it. And, uh, and I, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show and, uh, you know, I, I haven't really said this on anything official before. Uh, so you'll be the first, like, so the night I was wounded, like I was, uh, a sniper team leader. 
I was a master sniper. Um, you won't find many patrol reports with my signature on them, for the simple fact that we were doing uh, we were doing work. We're, we were doing what you would imagine a master sniper and his team does behind enemy lines. And when I stepped on that landmine, uh, for whatever reason, the chain of command decided to put my picture in the paper. And ever since, I've felt like I was on the back foot because my whole professional career is now there. And I became a sniper for exactly the reason that you don't have to talk about what you did. And so... I, I had to roll with that and because I immediately put my life in danger by letting the enemy know who's been killing them for the last uh, five months while we were there. And my team and I, uh, I have a number in my head that I don't want to say, but let's say I stopped counting out loud at 72 enemy killed. Wow. But that's a lot of assists, right? Uh, actual bullets in people uh, is a number I keep to myself. But it, when I say... 72 kills, I say 70, you know, 90% of them are assists. So whether or not I spotted the enemy and the Green Berets called in a, 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 an airstrike or my sniper saw a, a, a platoon and we used A-10s to wipe them out, yeah, the pilots get the kills, but we get the assist, right? And so as soon as my picture was printed, uh, they kind of uh, betrayed the trust that snipers have with D&D. And, uh, and it's been a problem ever since. My picture was the last casualty picture, I believe, for that very reason. Um, no one's ever apologized. No one's ever deep, like no one ever asked me why I wrote a book or if I wanted to uh, before today. Like uh, I was kind of pushed into it. But as far as uh, I feel like D&D &D as a whole, or, you know, or the ministry, I'm not sure who, Somebody decided that my life was less important than the story. And that's what soldiers do, right? Um, do, do you think that they were, by releasing your picture, like, were, do, you, do you get the sense that they were trying to, like, make your story a morale boost, maybe, for the country? Well, that, that yes, that was part of it. The other part, because of the work we were doing, it was just to cover up the failure of that particular mission. In my which opinion. Was, which was what? So you were on Task Force 108 or? 306. Oh, okay. My, my apologies. My yeah, apologies. yeah. No, no, but hang on. So that, <laughs> the job we were doing, uh, you know, at the time, it was the only mission I'd ever said no to because I just, you know, we'd been working straight since New Year's, uh, three and six man and, you know, occasionally other, other size of teams depending on the job. We were already short-staffed, and I, I was bagged personally. Um, and the mission, in my opinion, was going to, like, the overall goal of, of, of the task force mission was going to happen with or without us. They asked if I would go with my team. I said, you know, you can let Recky Platoon or somebody else can do that. Somebody told my boss something that made him tell me, like, I'm going to go and take your team. And I said, well, fuck that. Of course you're not going to take my team. And, uh, you know, I was last in the order of March and apparently the spot, it may or may not have been command detonated. So take from that what you will. And, uh, and it was a marked spot. So they knew it was a spot with an IED, et cetera. Did so, you know, did you know it was a spot? Well, no, this is what I'm saying. So, so, so that intel hadn't been passed down to like, to you or. Well, don't, don't 
overanalyze what I'm saying right, okay. right now. Okay. I, the picture in my mind is the master corporal, master sniper team leader with however many uh, tactical uh, engagements and whatever we did with uh, our allies. I said, I don't think we need to be there. The colonel and my sergeant said, we think you do. So we're going to take your team. And I said, no, no, I'm going to go. And I was the one that got smashed. So, you know, and then they put my picture in the paper. And ever since, I've been trying to figure out, like, my position. Because after they did that, the whole community, unfortunately, basically kind of had to, they couldn't turn to me, uh, you know, so to speak. So when I wrote my book, a big part of it was to get my side of the war out. And trust me, what you read is uh, is not close to everything, and that's between me and the and the unit and God. And because um, some things aren't meant to be talked about, but I achieved my goal in that even the old grizzled airborne guys and, and who I used to look up to, and I still do, many of them, uh, and 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 some of the other guys, uh, you know, they said uh, that I did it right, and my goal overall was to put a positive light on that war and it was a war i don't give a fuck what anybody says global war and terror yeah and um you know uh it was print the book or don't and because no one in in the in the dnd had told me anything good bad or indifferent um and because of the you know the morale position like you pointed out uh i just kind of rolled with it to be honest, my dad was on my case to write the book a lot. Uh, I don't know, man. I, yeah. And when it just happened, I tell you, I had two ghostwriters that I fired. I had one that quit because he because after Diab got killed, he thought he'd be next. Like I don't know, he's a whoa, this, whoa, 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 back up. Uh, you just said after Diab gets killed. D, that was the name of the guy in Parliament Hill, right? Is it Sorello? Yeah, Sorello yeah. was the soldier. Okay, so that happened during the election, and then my book was coming out the following fall, so my ghostwriter bailed. Really? He said, well, what if what if they come after me for writing your book? Wow. Yeah, really? yeah, yeah. So this, so regardless, anyway, I'm getting a little off topic, but, you know, to answer your question, at the, at the end of the day, my real job was, it's never been Amazing Race, it's never been a book writer, it's never been a podcaster, it's never been a politician... Fuck sakes, politicians. Anyway, uh, I was a I was a combat soldier, man. I am about as pure infantry as you can get in mindset and attitude. And I was a master sniper, uh, and I was a very young master sniper in combat. So that's the real Jody, I guess. And so uh, the book was to just kind of put a little bit of a closing chapter on that part of my life, and it and it and I achieved it. Yeah. So, so there's uh, there's two things I want to touch back on. Sure. Uh, I I just want to also like really. Uh, so when I wrote my book, it was uh, it was due to uh, pressure from uh, my father and my brother. Uh, so I, I I can certainly relate to that. But, which uh, you which you said was a quote stu- fucking yeah. stupid idea, and nobody will want to read it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Okay. Well, you know what? We'll write a book about you, but and uh, we'll see how you like it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but also like. So just like going back to uh, like at, at your core, uh, being an infantry soldier, have you like found it difficult to give that up or, or let that go, I suppose? Well, I let it go and it fucking ruined me. I drank yeah. and I sought comfort and other things, but I'm back with like my regimental association. I'm working back with my old unit. 
you know, I'm teaching marksmanship. Yeah. You know, all the things I was told not to do after I got, like, oh, you're a veteran now. You know, all those skills you spent your entire adult life perfecting, fuck those. Which is basically what I was told. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I never wanted to let it go. I, 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 like, I can't, I, like, I can't let it go. Uh, why should you? Uh, you know, like, even, even to this day, I'm, like, seeking out, like, even though I've, you know, I've, I've let myself go a little bit, but, uh, but, uh, I'm still seeking out, like, opportunities that will, like, get me back into, like, any sort of, uh, any sort of lifestyle like that. And I, like, I, it is, it's difficult. Well, yeah. I, th- I think so much of your identity is, your, your entire, that. your entire identity. And what's, you know, it's like, uh, the, it's like, did the great one not go on to coach a hockey team? Of course he did. Like, what else is Wayne Gretzky going to do when he got out of hockey? He's going to, like, run hockey or something. So, for guys like me and Dylan, who spend our adult lives learning how to do combat for a living, uh, like, how else do you want us to spend the rest of our lives? Especially if we're getting smashed at... You know, I know a guy who lost both feet at 19. He's paratrooper, this and that, grew up in the army. What's that guy supposed to do for the rest of his life? Right. You know? And the public is actually, they're turning to us for, for oh, how you guys have resiliency? How do you train for this? And, and you know, and we're going to go a little, we're going to get in a little trouble here. Frankly, I love it. The, a lot of the military story about, about combat isn't mine. I don't have PTSD. I was diagnosed with depression because I lost both feet. And then I had uh, drug abuse uh, issues. Because uh, you know what they give you for Oxycontin when you don't want to take Oxycontin anymore? More Oxycontin. So, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of it's kind of out of your hands. But uh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? The whole military combat identity has been co-opted by this mental health shit. And, uh, you know, I did an, uh, the last podcast I did, she, she talked about the suicide rate, which is no greater or less than normal. Yeah. Uh, by the way, within the actual combat arms community, it's way lower. Right. Right. By the way, you know why you end up with people having, uh, PTSD and committing suicide. When you ask a clerk who pushes paper and does typewriter shit, oh, here's a rifle and we need you to escort a convoy out to Spurwan where the snipers and the green berets are. So did the, like... Uh, so I, like I was in Afghanistan in 2013, way after combat operations had ended. So that actually happened. I heard like third or fourth hand stories of like, you know, like, uh, like cooks telling their like grandma or their parents that they were like going out, uh, on patrol and stuff. So like, yeah, during, they like, did. They did. Did they? They, well, well hang on. Remember. That's crazy. Remember, everything in the military is a patrol. That's first of all. Whether you're standing still or out inside the yes, gates, yes, 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 we're going to yes. patrol around inside the camp. Okay. So uh, there's, there's that. And then there's, uh, if you didn't, oh, on our tour, they were thinking about giving out a combat badge. And then because of that, all the uh, support personnel wanted a patrol so they could possibly qualify for it. Right. And then we didn't have any air power uh, for whatever reason. We had zero air support of our own. Yeah, uh, so uh, you know, convoys had to be used, and when we got there, so when we got there, D and D had sent zero combat engineering equipment that I saw uh, in 06. Uh, apparently, it was there somewhere, but it wasn't on the battlefield. Um, and they had three or four flatbeds for retrieving labs and stuff. Three of them were already blown up by the time yeah. I got, and we had just 
We were like there to relieve your unit as they were coming down from Kabul. So it's not like it's not like it was a surprise that we were going to Kandahar, right? But regardless, um, what we did, just like uh, the Marines in uh, Korea and you know all the other battles where you grab the cooks and the and the clerks and you send them out to the line, we did that. Okay. And um, by we, I mean the military. And uh, and I think we're paying the price now because right. Because, like, they don't have that mindset, right? Uh, Why should they? That's the part that kills me is, like, they, well, a soldier is a soldier. Uh, no. No. No, they're not, first of all. Because there's a reason you have combat arms and then the rest of them, right? And it's so, but unfortunately, it's an 80-20 uh, scale. Right. Uh, and when you equip 80, 100% of your army the same, except for, like, the 20% of the equipment that only the combat arms needs... You know, unfortunately, and I dealt with it my whole career, it becomes a cool guy thing. You know, I couldn't get a pistol because uh, some officer didn't think that corporals should have pistols. And it's never mind what your job is. You know, it's this mentality that, you know, uh, we're in combat in in Kandahar uh, when Aunt Medusa kicks off. And the mechanics back in camp don't want to work on the vehicles because it's after four o'clock. If you're a mechanic and you hear this, sorry, man, that happened. It happened. Mm-hmm. I had an artillery forward observer that wouldn't give me control of the artillery battery because he didn't think I was responsible enough to shoot his ammo. Right. Same guy who then called in an airstrike on our own guys. Right. So, so it's it's the dichotomy of of the of the environment and that we went from a training to a war footing and we kind of didn't know how to how to handle it. Everyone from private to general had never been shot at before. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I know of. Yeah. And and also, you know, um, successive Canadian voting blocs have voted in governments that love slashing military spending. Well, it doesn't matter which government gets voted in. They all Hey, look, fucking... I know conservatives love Harper, but I got nothing good to say about him when it comes to the military. Neither do I. Neither do I. Uh, but that's just me. You know, I don't, I don't know what other people might think. Well, that, that, that's going to go against a lot of the prevailing wisdom, right? That the, the liberals are tough on the military and the conservatives... Uh, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's bullshit. But, but, but what does that mean to the liberals? Like, why do they enjoy stomping on our necks so much? What's in it for them is what I don't get. Because they sure love using us when they need us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, the only modern government to deploy Canadian Armed Forces against its own people, I believe, is liberal. I don't know of a conservative government that's used the military against the people. Well, and all, like, like you know, so who like, was uh, in charge when Oka happened? Was that Mulroney was, or Kretchen? No, it was the it was it was Kretchen. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and he was uh, Trudeau's two IC. So, yeah, yeah. and fits, uh, fits and, the and, and they they got us into Afghanistan too. Uh, well, I mean, the world got us into. I'm no, not, but but I mean, like from a from a parliamentary standpoint, it was it was a liberal government. That was yeah, yeah, but I don't begrudge the liberals for running the country the way they feel fit. Like, no, no, they no, get no. the votes; they're allowed to do what they want. But what but, I'm saying, know, I'm just, just like backtracking onto like, uh, like you said, like the liberal government loves to use the military. Oh, they love it. But like, they're, right. they're, they fuck us. They fuck us around. But hang on. So let's examine that. <laughs> let's examine that statement because I try to figure out like why did I almost died because we didn't bother to send helicopters. And, you know, when we had an Air Force CDS, I said, well, why didn't we send helicopters? You know what he told me? He said, well, we didn't want to work for the Army. Cool, man. What? Awesome. Yeah, well, hey, and you're a general. You're allowed to say things like that. So, so, so think about that. What is in it for 
the sitting government to degrade its own military? I don't know. This is something that, we, like, you know, maybe it's beyond the scope of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. But also, <laughs> no, very no, politically, I, I think we can uh, we'll, we'll sort out <laughs> we'll these problems. <laughs> Jody, a lot of uh, a lot of people who listen to the podcast uh, when when they they heard that you were coming on, they they extremely wanted me... disappointed were they? Well, that remains <laughs> to be seen. But, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> they they want to know, and and actually, I want to know too. Like, what is it about Canada that produces the like we're we're, we're known as a, a nation that does mm. produce good snipers? Mm. Um, we are now, yeah. So what what is up with that? Like, how did how did Canada sort of fulfill this niche? So, I believe it goes back to World War One. Boer actually it goes back to you. Ever heard of the uh, Nile Voyagers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. me and you. Uh, so, Canada used to have a very well earned reputation uh, as being, you know, uh, good soldiers because of our militia system. You know, uh, it was credited, though maybe a little over credited, with stopping the Americans in, in 1812, etc. So when you're a commander or a battlefield person, as, as I am, I'm looking at maximum effect for minimum effort and, and risk, by the way. So when I joined the military in 94, we had just gotten the C7 and it was quickly upgraded to the C7A1, which was scoped. And um, if you go back to Tommy Prince uh, in the SSF and you go back to World War I. battalion. <laughs> Well, they were stood up in Ottawa, so like... Uh, Tommy Prince was 2VP after. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a Canadian soldier to me, but he's a sniper, ultimately. And so, um, you know, I love guys that care what battalion people come <laughs> oh, from. Oh, I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah. Well, I can give it back, buds. Come on. We can <laughs> wrestle day, right here on your day, dad's floor. All day, all day, So, so uh, the Canadian Army almost canceled snipers during the Cold War. And uh, and some guys, I don't know who, some of the guys I trained under, I know that, they decided to take what they had and make the best of it. So we had the C3, which was from the 70s. Uh, so they had them refurbished and they bought some different scopes and they really got into the books. And, um, and we realized, we being the royal we uh, in the military, that... Uh, they call us, uh, and not just snipers, by the way. There's snipers, there's uh, reconnaissance scouting, uh, there's forward observation, there's combat divers who are all nuts. I love those guys. There's the pathfinders. You know, uh, after they disbanded the Airborne, we had no tier two, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And we kind of, all of us in the specialty sections and platoons and the different regiments and, 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 and stuff, we kind of filled in. And sniping consists, sniping and reconnaissance with, uh, uh, like optics and sensors became very uh, valuable in its ability to let you know what's going on. You know, so in Kosovo, my first tour, we had just gotten the Coyote reconnaissance vehicle. Right. And at the time, it had the best surveillance suite of any reconnaissance vehicle in, in the world that we thought of in NATO. And so when you are able to report on what's going on, you're able to affect... Uh, and or like affect outcomes by interdicting, right? So interdiction uh, is a very high priority of snipers and scouting and, and, you know, and any rifle platoon or any unit could be employed in a manner of scout or, or screen, <coughs> pardon me. But when you add in the element of taking a guy's head off at 3,500 meters, 
when he thought, you know, when he's giving you the finger through the scope and then you, okay, and you, and you get him, that psychological effect on the enemy is uncalculable. Yeah. And we got a guy at 1650 and after, like, we couldn't, they wouldn't poke their heads up above a wall for, for five clicks beyond, because we were in an overt post uh, for a while. And, and then, you know, you, I've talked to other snipers and they talk about getting guys at two clicks and, you know, there's unreported distances and stuff. But the point of the whole uh, exercise, so to speak, is to let the enemy know that Canadian snipers and or marksmen, because you don't have to be a sniper to shoot someone at two kilometers. You could be a marksman. Uh, you're just you're just assigned to a rifle platoon or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Or have a lab. Or a lab, <laughs> yeah. But the thing with the lab is they expect you expect a lab to eat you alive. Right? Yeah. Like, you look at a lab. Like, if I had to fight a lab, I would run. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Fuck fighting a lab. Fuck, yeah. First of all, fuck fighting Canadian soldiers. They don't use us unless they don't expect prisoners. Yeah. And, you know, I know Canadians are like, oh, we're peacekeepers. Yeah, bullshit. No, we are. Because we'd kill everybody that would ruin the peace. <laughs> I don't think that's what they mean by that. <laughs> that's exactly what we do, though. Um, why was the PPCLI so effective in the Maydak pocket? Because they shot back. Yeah, and they yeah. said, go fuck yourselves, right? And I know I'm using bad language right now, but I'm an infantier, and you think a locker room is bad? Try a platoon area. <laughs> um, and um, and our, our goal on the battlefield is to destroy the enemy. Yeah, and close with and destroy the enemy, no, man. No, forget the close with part. Well, okay, in, in your case, in your case, but... Well, listen, uh, like, like, but Dylan, like, I'm a, a sniper is uh, everything from knife fighter up. Like, I like to use a bolt-action long-range rifle, but if I have to, you know, I'll be uh, Bubba Yaga from uh, from John Wick and stab you with a pencil, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're not picky on how we kill uh, people, but it's very effective with long-range rifles, and it's that's it, the effectiveness of the psychological impact. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to, like, get at is uh, I would imagine that when the enemy is in a position that they think is secure... And far enough away. And that's when, when I come in. When you come in yeah. and you start picking them off, and I would imagine that just, it, it sows terror. And then all of a sudden their position becomes untenable because they're in a safe place. But actually, whoa, it's not safe after all. So did you did you actually see that in action? Like the, the effect of like, you, you take the shot, you kill the enemy. What happens to that enemy position afterwards? Like, is it abandoned or do they try to re-secure? You, you know what you're asking... Uh questions that honestly don't have quantifiable answers that I could say well this happens so many times what often happens regardless of how you engage a, an enemy that fights as, as guerrillas they scatter unless they're a disciplined group which is usually the guys coming out of Pakistan but um, because they move in groups they're actually easier to spot so um, you know and I'll tell you we often didn't engage with our own weapons we would use artillery or aircraft or a lav nearby, if there's a lav nearby. I My favorite was a Predator drone with like four or five, uh, you know, there's different payloads, but back in 06, I believe they we had, I don't think we had the Reaper yet, but uh, my favorite aircraft was a, uh, was a Predator drone with a couple of Hellfires and or uh, a B-52 at like maximum range with uh, J-DAMs. And what those are is their radar and laser... No, it's not radar. GPS and laser-guided munition. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are accurate to within a 10-figure grid, which is a meter square on the ground. 
And man, if I had one of those around, I didn't even pull out my rifles because why risk my position and my men uh, when I could just lob grenades at you, which is all bombs are. Yeah. Because uh, I was a mortarman originally. And um, and then I'm fine. And if they don't know where I am anyway, uh, I can call in artillery all day. Yeah. Be- before this episode started, uh, I did a little bit of, of research. Uh, and so uh, by that, I mean, I went on Wikipedia and... Uh, Here's what I came up with. Robert Furlong, uh, he had the longest confirmed kill from 2002 until 2009. It was about 2,400 meters. Mm -hmm. After that, I think a a British soldier uh, narrowly uh, had a a longer distance kill by like a couple dozen meters. And then in 2017, that record was smashed in in Iraq where you were doing. Yeah, by JTF2. Right? And that kill was... Allegedly. Well... (laughs) And they're they're saying it was three thousand five hundred and forty meters. Yeah. As somebody who who trained with these guys, who who knows what it takes to to do that, like what 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 do you have to put into making a shot of that magnitude of that distance? Um. Well, it's everything you'd imagine, plus uh, the level of training and dedication uh, that we have in snipers and especially when they're active you know Rob got really good because he was allowed to consistently engage an enemy with that rifle and that and that ammunition and once you understand how your equipment works it's like any race most race car drivers you know they could they it's the same type of uh, of inputs and outputs uh, most professionals anything like demolition writing pod like it's the same um, type of, of, of problem solving and also, uh, you know, data crunching. And, you know, uh, Carlos Hathcock, the Marine sniper who held the record right up until Rob broke it, he called it swag. And I like to call it swag too. It's scientific wild-ass guess. Yeah. Not to diminish what they did. Remember, at 3,500 meters, a one millimeter deviation from your target is three and a half meters. Right. Right. So imagine that, like, most people are way skinnier than three and a half meters, and then your bullseye at that range on a on a piece of paper would be about eight to twelve feet wide, right? So you're actually talking about shooting a bullseye within three bullseyes when you hit a person at that range. So what they had, though, honestly, in my opinion, that made them that much more effective is teamwork. And what snipers do is, I know we're portrayed in the media as these lone gunmen. and that No. A good sniper will always have backup. A good sniper will never think he's the best shot. A good sniper looking to be effective and force multiply on the battlefield, whether he's basic, uh, debt commander, or advanced, or master sniper, he knows that when he integrates himself into the overall combat toolbox, so to speak he's able to be effective at ranges double of what they would expect normally, right? And so what I have seen is that to make a shot that far, you're probably good to use two shooters, maybe three, mm-hmm. and one or two different spotters because at that range, you're not seeing uh, the bullet in the air. You're not, you can't track it. You can only look for the effect on the target. And so the so what they did is they put together a team, and, and just like we did, I had a three- to six-man team at my disposal, and, and they worked it out between in the team. And they finally 
put the rounds where they wanted them, and the enemy shut down their attack. Yeah, it, it just seems like there's like at that range, there, there must be so many variables that. Uh... Well, what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say to you though is like honestly, I can't tell tell you how many variables get calculated in your head while you're while you're in the moment. Like you know, mm-hmm. I I missed a guy at like twenty five hundred by you know on through the scope it looked like i barely missed him but if we went out and measured it it probably would have been like 25 feet right right because but the 50 cal gives you effect and effect means like you see what happens so you, you know that pink mist eh? uh you know what i never saw a pink mist but uh <laughs> but but what i'm saying is well, that, I, that, that's just what i've heard from uh so I, I was never a sniper obviously so uh well we you know what man at that at the range we shoot we wouldn't see the mist right, is right. what i'm saying uh but but the mist, uh, the mist is a real thing. It's for sure happens. Sometimes you get, you know, I've I've done a couple of things where maybe you know you get blood on yourself. So, but the point is that <clears throat> to to quantify everything that goes into that shot and then add in the amount like of practice, um, you know, the whole saying, how do you get to Carnegie Hall comes into effect. Ten thousand hours, so ten thousand rounds. How did that guy do that shot? Ten thousand rounds. You know, and did he and did he count them all? And were they all bullseyes? No, but the one that matters is the one that got that guy. Yeah, that right. guy could have missed every, that. Those snipers could have missed every shot. They, for all we know, it took him a hundred rounds to get that guy. Yeah. but they got him. Yeah, you know that, that's a good point because I think a lot of people the the perception is that it's you know remember that that movie uh, I forget what it's called but uh, the guy like has the mantra one shot one kill, but it's it's not it's not really like that, is it? <laughs> For whatever reason, we got that as a motto. I've never shot anybody in one round or less, unless they were like 50 meters away from me. Yeah. Most sniper shots that I've seen are at least two rounds, maybe probably three. Right. Have you ever, uh, like, were you ever engaged by, uh, like, a counter sniper? I believe I was. Uh, you know, we were at Spur One, and... Uh, and then I was on the phone in a spot that we all use, so I it was a secure spot. And around went, I felt I heard around, and I felt around go right by my head. So I don't know. Okay. Well, don't dude, know. that was my next question. Yeah, and you just stole it. Oh, it's, all right. <laughs> it's it's good, man. But you know, uh, you know, uh, be getting missed on the battlefield, like. Uh, a whole lot of things just missed me on the battle. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And and most of them weren't counter sniper thing, yeah. you know. And where we were, like I said, maybe I don't know because yeah. we had Chechen snipers apparently hunting us, and those are the only guys I was worried about running yeah, into. Yeah. And I think we did run into them and we kicked their ass. Right. And I think uh, I don't think we ever heard from them again in that area. <laughs> in my, I don't know. Yeah, I just yeah. know that they were a threat, and then one day they weren't, and we had had a few engagements that we didn't. Here's the thing about being a Reg Forest frontline sniper. We're not JTF or SWAT. I was never shown a single picture or a single name of who I was shooting because we were there to counter. What, what does the infantry do? Close with them. Close with and destroy the enemy. And to me, as a regular army frontline sniper, I got the top of your head to the tip of your toes and everything in between. And I'm going to, like I said, if, I, if I'm going to throw grenades, stab you, shoot you, blow you up, doesn't matter to me. I just yeah, want to kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did how did uh, how did it feel like when you uh, when you killed your first person? I don't remember. No, me personally. <laughs> so I never shot anybody with a sniper rifle. Okay. My first close up engagement with someone uh, was in a spot, and he was there, and I and then he wasn't, and I ran up the stairs, and 
I think I got his buddy that was on the other side after I got to the top of the wall. But I have memory gaps. Yeah, yeah. It, it, actually, that, that's a good thing to touch on. It, it's, uh, like, I recorded a lot of my combat eh, on GoPro. And I I watch these videos, me being in combat. And it, like, I know it's me. But I don't fucking remember. There, no, when I say I have memory, I have, like, moments that I know happened. But... I didn't remember them until later. And honestly, they were mostly when I was up close with the enemy. Right, right. Because, uh, you know, I, I had a Green Beret tell me I shot a guy. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, I was going to shoot him. And yeah. I was like, all right, whatever, man. I don't really, like, I didn't give a fuck. I was just there to fight, man. And yeah, I yeah. loved it. And oh, I, dude, dude, it, it, it's the fucking best. Killing someone is like the, like a lot, like the first time you have sex. Like, uh, <laughs> like you don't like, you don't really know I'm not what laughing you're doing. at you, man. I just, you don't, you don't really know what you're doing. And like, uh, I, like, like there's, like, there's a lot of feelings. Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, it, uh to me, it was, uh, yours is different than mine, I guess. Yeah, yeah, like, okay. I honestly have zero emotional attachment to it. I, yeah, like, it, 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 it was, I, I, I thought it was fucking awesome. Uh, well, I mean, there's like awesome in the sense that I won. That's how I felt. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and I wasn't fighting anybody who didn't want to be there. I know that for sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were fighting the guys coming out of Pakistan. We were fighting, like I said, some Chechens showed up apparently. Um, apparently, you know, now we're hearing rumors about maybe the Russians had bounties out yeah, on certain yeah. guys. I don't know if our group was part of that or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, where we were, we were in a. You know, like I, a lot of what happened is still technically, I believe, classified and stuff. But, you know, it's also, um, what are you there for? Sorry. That's yeah. what I wanted to get into is uh, you guys were both in Afghanistan. And in the year 2020, when you look at what that country is today, when you were deployed there, is that how... You is that how you thought Afghanistan would look in the year 2020? Or in did what you, sense? Well, in the sense of like, what, what, like you just said, what were you there for? Like, uh, I didn't care. I don't care. I don't care. Right, uh, but, but hang on. When you look at the country now, is it in better? I think it's great. Yeah. So, so you can look at it and be like, I me. have no regrets. I, uh, the only regret I have is like, uh, that I trusted my team a little bit too much on like the, on the wounded side. That, but that's post, like there's 20, what do you call that? Uh, Hindsight. Hindsight 2020. Yeah, yeah. And I don't believe anyone was being bad. Or, I just think, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. But that's post-injury. When I look at Afghanistan, though, like, little girls go to school. Little boys read more than just the Quran. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it was a progressive uh, Islamic country anyway before the Russians invaded and whatever, whatever. Like, you know, yeah. if you really want to drill into the politics of it, it's not up to us to decide at the end of the day because... I did security uh, in Kabul for an election, and the people there were like, "What do you, what do you mean we get to choose?" Like they just didn't get it. To them, it didn't make. They're like, "Nah, man." Like, f frankly, a lot of them were like, "I really don't want this responsibility." I have a village elder who I who I let uh, handle that shit for me. Um, so, and that's what I was kind of getting at. Like, uh, like I, I just like I don't care. Like, because like when I joined the Canadian military and I joined it probably a little bit later than I should have uh, to actually get like the experience I wanted. It did like, like, it didn't matter about like, it didn't matter about, I wasn't going there to save their country. Right. I, I, I was going there to, to be a soldier. And 
the only thing that I wanted out of it was to experience warfare. Right. Uh, well, I guess where we differ, differ is that I joined the army at 17. Right, right. I was looking for, you know, a way of life, uh, direction, and, you know, just, I was looking for something. And uh, whether, like you said, whether we were doing Red River Relief, well, I never did that, but I did uh, I some did. of the Ice Storm <laughs> stuff, um, you know, uh, and stuff like that. And whether I'm helping Canadians or shooting Taliban or it's like, you know, it's a, it's a whatever. He's, what Dylan's saying is right. It's a whatever. But at the same time, I feel good knowing when I look back at, at Afghanistan that overall we did what Canadians do. We did the good stuff too. I want, I, I, we pl- I want, we I, did the roads. What's that? I want to touch on one point. So like, so I was on the very last tour to Afghanistan. Right. Uh, so it was uh, Task Force 213. So we had a we had a general come in. Don't remember who it was, but he was like, we we did like a, a town hall kind of like auditorium thing, and he's like, we won, and I was like, I was like, like what the fuck are you talking about? If the goal of us being there was to defeat the enemy, mm. well, we certainly didn't win. Uh, yeah, but but hang on. But, so, but, but it was such an ill like it was such an ill defined mission from like a mm. political standpoint. But right. and, and, and I got into it with my platoon mates about this. Like, uh, so they they were in. Uh, some of them had been in 08, and very few of them had been in 06 because there was one company of two PBCLI on Op Medusa. Mm-hmm. All the ground that, like, all the ground that you guys took has been like relinquished back to uh, the Taliban. Right. And, and like, but like, like, why care? Because like, like, we were just there to do. It's not my house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just there to help put up some drywall. If you want to knock it over, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, Dylan, remember, um, our values as Canadians follow us, and one thing we are known for uh, around the world is being good guys. And I and I am firm in that. Like we, regardless, we're the good guys, and we go in with good intent. And our political masters uh, feel like they're doing something well. But also, they're the political masters. And let's think about it this way. I, I sat on a city council and I had a police force and, a, and, uh, and the first responders. What's their mandate? Maintain and uh, ensure the peace, right? Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about ground taken and lost, we got to remember that uh, that style of warfare is actually fallen out of favor as well. Because when you draw a line and you say everything we take on that side of the line is ours, then that's where you run into issues of uh, legacy. You, well, know, I, you I, run I, into I, issues of social justice. You run into issues of favoritism, things well, like I mean, that. They, like, they, they, what you had just described has basically created the entire mess in which the Middle East, like the, like the true Middle East is in right now. Uh, Drawing artificial lines. Uh, Perhaps I don't know. That was done by people above our pay grade. No, no, no. A long but, but, time but that's ago. what I mean. Like, like uh, you know, like Iraq, uh, Syria. Yeah. What uh, about them? It, like, it, it's a shit show because right. of World War One and Sykes Pico. Do you think? Do you think it was World War One? I? I think. I, pro- I personally I, don't think it was. World I, War I think I. probably if they. Well, no, actually, you know what? Even if even if they did divide up, you know, uh, Sunni, Shia, Kurds. In their own countries, they'd probably still fucking be at war. But <laughs> no, no, but but when what you're saying is true, somebody did draw a line on the map, and he was a white British guy at the time. But who were his advisors? They were all locals. You know, uh, it's not like the British guys were there and have a vacuum. 
right? right. And uh, no, it's, uh, you know, and so and so when you read the history pre World War One, uh, the world was exactly where they thought it should be at the time. And you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, it's easy for the leadership in those failed countries to point at yeah, 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 yeah. the uh, the the West, so to speak, yeah. and say. Well, it's their fault. We sold them all our oil for nothing. And then our crown uh, family decided that we weren't worth anything and sold us to them as well. You know, um, there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, if you know your dad, your dad's a politician at the provincial level and, uh, and I did the municipal. But I tell you, man, politics is always why a line gets drawn in a map where it does. And to blame who drew it is right, like right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is like blaming the quarterback because they maybe moved the goalpost. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so you know, it, politics is like trying to score a touchdown on a on a football field where the goalpost is running away from you. Yeah, and and on that note, actually, that's a, a good a good bridge to where I wanted to to go with you next because, and that concludes part one of my talk with Master Sniper Jody Middick. In the next episode, we're going to get into the corrupt world of politics and Jody's time as an Ottawa City Councillor, and quite a bit more. I'll say right now that there's going to be some explosive stuff in that episode. I think you're going to like it. In the meantime, I'm going to give a shout out to some of the new followers to the podcast during the last week. So first of all, we've got Benny Jardine. Hey Ben, it was great meeting you at the farm. And also... We've got an account by the name of Fuck. And I hope that's not your real name, Fuck. But hey, thanks all the same for following and subscribing. And for everybody else, if you like today's show, if you like what you're hearing, then be like Ben and be like Fuck and subscribe. Also, you can share on social media, tell your friends and family about the podcast as well to help grow the audience. And hey, there's one more thing you can do to help me out. Go to Apple iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast from and rank the podcast. If you're feeling sort of uh, verbose, then maybe you can also leave a written review as well. And that really helps out. So that's it. That's all for this episode. Stay tuned for part two of my talk with Jody Middick. You, I think you're going to really like it. And until that time, out. <laughs>